1682, a plague broke out in the middle of Europe that killed thousands. Nobody knew where it came from, but the symptoms were that the lymph nodes, mostly around the neck and under the arms and sometimes in the groin, would break out in little nodules. And in many cases, um, people with it died two to three days after the first symptoms. They were blaming the air they breathed. They were blaming food. They were blaming demons. They were blaming God. But nobody knew. In the midst of that pandemic, people just up and vanished. They ran for the hills. They abandoned their homes, their villages, their entire farms, and what were once villages became ghost towns. They didn't go back, not after the pandemic, not ever. They were just scared away. In spite of this, there was a village in Glaukau, Germany, that did almost the opposite. While everyone else was heading for the hills and abandoning each other and their villages, there was a small community of people in Glaukau that were slowly rebuilding the institutions of that little village. After the pandemic was over, they set themselves to building new homes, they built schools, They built a hospital. In one case, they built a chemical lab. They built an orphanage for the poor. They built a refuge for widows. They built bakeries. They built um, bookstores, of all things. And they even built a museum in the matter of just a few years. And it turns out that one of the key figures who was the catalyst for this kind of social rejuvenation was a college student. He was 21 years old by the name of August Hermann Frank. He was studying for ministry, but he also played around with chemistry and with what we now call social sciences. He was a social entrepreneur. And what was the genius behind this young kid named Frank? Turns out there were two things. One was that he had an encounter with God that indelibly stamped a conviction, one conviction on his heart. He was reading one morning and stumbled across 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having sufficiency in all things, you may excel in every good work. Let me translate that. God is able to generously give you all things so that now having all things, you may do good things for others. Does that make sense? Good. Wasn't sure I could repeat that again. With that one conviction stamped on his heart, 
He began to put his faith into practice. He was a pietist. And the church in that day, the Lutheran church, was high on theology, low on practice. They would get lost in these heady thoughts about what things mean, always in the abstract. And Franck was a pietist. He said, faith doesn't matter until it actually affects the things we do. Somebody say, amen. The second real genius behind this man is that he belonged to what they were calling little churches within the church. There was a small community of people that he met with regularly. And these people were praying together. They were reading scripture together, as you heard Karen say on the video, and they were innovating ideas. And within this small community, was a rule, or actually a list of them. You can look these up. They had rules that said, never speak of one's enemies except with kindness and love and prayer, focusing on their good and on the love of God for them. And don't speak much if you don't have to where it's possible to say nothing, say nothing. You hear these like codes that are running down the center of this community. Be careful how you spend your time. Engage in every good work. Avoid things that don't matter. And avoid reading trifle stuff. That's a translation, but I, I think he means fiction. Just relax, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Oh my goodness. Uh, Daniel.rife at collegewest.com. So the point is that inside of this community was this way of life that everybody had agreed to. And if you start there, they started with that little moral code, that that steel rod that runs down the center of that little society and works itself out in good works. That became the genius of the social entrepreneur that was August Hermann Frank. By the time Frank died in 1727, somebody sent a letter to King Frederick William I extolling his virtues in life, I think looking for some kind of commendation. And this is part of what the letter said. In his school of pedagogy, 82 scholars, 70 teachers, and other persons. In the Latin school, three inspectors, 32 teachers, 400 students, 10 servants. In the common school, four inspectors, 106 teachers, 1,725 boys and girls. In the orphanage, there was 100 boys, 34 girls, 10 overseers. At the free table where he fed the poor, 225 students, 360 poor children, employed in the drugstore, the bookstore, and other things he started, 82 people. This, sir, makes a total of more than 3,200 persons that were instructed, sheltered, employed, or otherwise connected with these great institutions. Talk about an obituary. 
the moral to the story, I guess, is that you should never underestimate the power of a few people who gather regularly around a rule. Never underestimate what a handful of people can do in any city or organization if they gather regularly around a rule. This is Paul's point in Philippians chapter one and two. Paul sits in a prison, whether it's Rome or Ephesus, we're not sure. But in that prison, he is probably chained to the wall or to another prisoner. There is rumor that they're gonna come and take Paul away and execute him. So Paul writes in Philippians what he believes might be his last letter. And he writes it to a small cluster of Christians that gather in a city called Philippi that is deeply under the influence of the Roman Empire. And Paul knows by watching the Romans that even though the empire is flourishing, the empire is on the clock. He can feel the institutions and the traditions of Rome are starting to crumble. They're starting to get weaker. Society is drifting into moral chaos. And as they do, religious people become more or less targeted because what Christians stand for is a life that is opposite the life of the Romans. So every time Christ is preached, it feels to them like they're preaching against the Roman culture. This is why Paul is in prison. But the good news is, rather than keep the Christians quiet, it has actually emboldened the Christians to say things more publicly. Paul says, even the guards who work for Rome know that I'm in prison because of Christ. And the brothers and sisters who used to be quiet, they now see the suffering that I'm going through and they're starting to speak up with more boldness. So you start to see in the city of Philippi, this strong, dominant, but crumbling influence of the empire and then within it is this tiny little society that Paul is speaking into. There's one other problem. The forces that are tearing the Romans apart are the same three demons that have haunted humanity from the beginning of time. One of those is materialism or consumerism. It's this idea that happiness can be purchased, that success has a number attached to it, that my security is tied to a number in retirement. It's a materialistic consumerist mindset. Consumers always market their happiness to some provider that is outside of themselves. Buy this, get that, own this, do that, and then you will be happy. Second is hedonism. Hedonism is the unconstrained pursuit of pleasure. Whatever makes one happy, one pursues Society be damned. 
It does not matter because any attempt of society to put a limit on my pursuit of pleasure is an infringement on my freedom. So you can see just from the first two alone how the Christian message is crossways. Can you see this? Can you see it? The third is individualism. It's the idea that I can define myself, invent myself, rely on myself, determine myself. Anything that I belong to, I measure by that organization's ability to meet my needs, to satisfy my desires. So I can belong to things, but I'm always measuring how good they are for me. It's not what I do for the public. The public is there for me. Now, these three powers that are tearing Rome down, materialism, hedonism, and individualism, or money, sex, and power, are disintegrating the culture. And Paul is calling on his people to live different lives. Paul says to them in chapter three, you must shine like stars in this corrupt society. He says there are people whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, and whose mind is always set on earthly things. But your citizenship is in heaven, and you eagerly await a savior from there. Do you see what Paul is doing? He is saying, this is the society you live in, and this is what I'm calling you to be. Are you there so far? You're waiting for, I can tell some of you are like, well, I'm waiting for you to get interesting. I'm, this is the crux of the argument. Sorry for you. So Paul says to his little group of Christians in chapter one, whatever you do and whatever happens to me, you must conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. You must live in a way that is, consistent with the gospel because it is Christ's reputation and not your own that is on the line. And then he starts to use language that I don't see in any other one of his letters, you guys. And he starts to describe this little community. He says, whether I come and see this or whether I just hear about it, what I want to see among your little society is each other standing side by side, striving for the gospel, being of one mind and one spirit and one purpose for the faith of the gospel. Are you hearing what he's saying? Every time we read this, we read it in the abstract sense. We say, oh, I think what Paul's trying to say is that you should be united in heart and all practice one faith. But if you look at the text, that's not what he said. He said that you would strive side by side with one spirit, one mind, and one purpose. He's not talking about some abstract thing. He's talking about these Christians that are scattered in Philippi, 
actually coming together to form a tight-knit cell. This living cell will be a catalyst for change in the city of Philippi. And it will be like a remnant. It's like a remnant in the organized church that is dying. It turns out this has been the practice of Christians for about 1,500 years. Paul's predictions for Rome all came true. In the fourth or fifth century, Rome started to formally crumble. The public went off into mass chaos. The church, which was a gathering of Christians, were now getting full of people that were only half Christian. Half of them was professing Jesus, but the other half of them, I don't mean the group, I mean the person. They were of double minds. They wanted to follow Jesus, but they were dragging all of their baggage with them into the church. And so the church was becoming this mixed society. And you're you're looking at a church saying, how on earth are you going to take a group of Christians that are only half committed, that are into a hundred different things as well as Jesus, and hope that that little church is going to influence society? And the answer is they're not. So in the fifth century, a lay person, not a minister, by the name of Benedict, started what he called orders. All an order was, was a small society of his day, all brothers, (laughs) that lived together for the sake of praying together encouraging one another and influencing um, the outside world. The myth is that when he put his little society together, all they did was withdraw from the world and got holy while the world went to hell. This is not true. They were in fact very active in the rebuilding of the world. They cleared forests, they drained swamps, they built roads, they built hospitals, they built multiple schools, they translated some of the classic literature from one language to another and therefore preserved it. They trained people in the right interpretation of scripture. They were far more than just a little holy club that meets on the side that had no influence. They had profound influence on the people around them. In fact, years later, when they began to commission people from their little society to go into villages and preach the gospel, the public flocked to them. 
They flocked to them because their lives were demonstrably different from the chaos everyone else was living in. And so there began in the 13th century a secular version of this. They called it the third order. The priests were the first order. The nuns were the second order. And then they raised up the laity with the same convictions and the same practices that the brothers once had in the monastery. Are you tracking? With slight adaptations. When the brothers got together in the monastery, they said to each other, if the problem is money, sex, and power, then the three vows you take to get into this society is poverty, which is no money, chastity, which is no sex, and obedience, which is no power. It's power deferred. But when you start to attract lay people like those from college church, who are already married and gainfully employed, you cannot say no money. Now, if you're living alone, you can say no money. But if you're living with your family and children and you come home one day and say, God has laid a message on my heart, we're gonna get rid of all our money. Let me forewarn you. They ain't going to work. And you can't say no sex. Well, you can, but it's not going to work out for you. And you can't say no power. Because if you're over something, if you're running something, if you're leading something, you have power. And you don't just disavow yourselves of power in the name of holiness. And so what they did in the third order was they modified this. And they said, instead of poverty, it's simplicity. And simplicity simply means we live frugally and we are content with what God has given us and we live generously. So even if we have six-figure incomes, we give away tons of stuff. And chastity didn't mean no sex. It meant fidelity or loyalty or purity, which simply means I constrain my body and sexuality to the boundaries that God has ordered. And obedience didn't mean you have no power. It meant humility It meant taking what power you have and distributing that to the brothers and sisters who live in your community. And it meant deferring your convictions to those of the body. So you're not just sitting there saying, well, I don't agree with that. Well, it it doesn't 
all due respect, matter what you agree with. What matters is what your community has agreed together is the right and holy way to live. Are you, are you still tracking this? Can you see the genius of this? They are now forming in the midst of society that is coming apart. Little societies, little churches, communities that are living in simple, practical, and countercultural ways. So when people come into Christ, they come into a lifestyle, not just a belief system. It's a lifestyle that is not only different from society, it is better than society. And that's what we are calling people into. Now, it should be clear by now where this message is going. There are moments in history, and we are in one now, when old things are dying and something new is not yet born, everything that we know about society feels like it's moving right now. And it feels like we, not Rome, we are drifting into moral chaos. We, not Rome, are seeing the basic fabric of human relationships torn apart. We, not Rome, are seeing the government become more polarized. We, not the Romans, are seeing people struggle with poverty and illiteracy. We look around society and we see the same three demons at work in our culture. There is materialism, or greed, where more is better. And the measure of success always comes with profits. And security is a retirement number. And we know in our heart of hearts, there is no number. My financial advisors, multiple, tell me, Steve, the biggest myth is that there's a number. People come to see me with eight, nine figures in their retirement, wondering if they'll have enough. This is not an economic problem. This is a disease. And it is rampant in a culture that measures success according to numbers. And we struggle with unlimited pursuit of pleasure in the pursuit of individualism the right to invent oneself, to define oneself, to express oneself, to rely on oneself, to authenticate oneself, such that the public can't even speak into it. And nobody wants to be rude. Nobody wants to say mean things. But don't you feel in your heart of hearts that any society or civilization cannot sustain the pressure for long? You just can't. Some people have actually counted 21 civilizations and said there's only eight left and seven of those are dying and the last is ours. So how's it going for us? You know, you look at it and just go, no civilization in the history of the world has sustained these things, none. 
How much longer can we play? What is the answer? Is it to try to Christianize America? Is it to get hold of the political offices? Is it to launch some campaign? Is it to take over the positions of power and make those people live Christian? (laughs) You've had kids. You know that doesn't work. The power is in the alternative. What if, from this body right here, we had Christians that went off to the workspace every week, and instead of just working alone and uh, talking about Christ if Jesus comes up, which I think is a noble thing to do, what if we were more proactive? What if we played offense? What if we went to the workspace or the place where we live and we just started to gather with one or two people in that workspace and pray for God to do something in that space that is redemptive? I say this because I think behaviors are attached to physical spaces. I can't prove it, but I've certainly seen it. People live fine until they all get together in a space, and it's like the space has a virus. It just takes over their behaviors. So what if we entered those spaces as Christians who work there, and instead of praying alone as an individual for other individuals, that's great. We prayed together for the life of the organization where we work. What if we just said, what do we want God to do, and we started praying out loud in places. Leah Labresco puts it best. She says, whatever you do alone, do it together. And whatever you do in private, do it in public. Now you're following the myth. Some of you, that's not acceptable. Something will happen. They'll come after me. Make them tell you no. If they do, you'll obey. But make them tell you no. Don't just surrender the turf without becoming more proactive. Now, for some of you, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh my goodness, Now he went and got Catholic on me. (laughs) Or you're thinking to yourself, I don't have time for this. Or you're thinking, this is way too hard. I don't want to start in order. Would you consider this? There is probably already an order in the place where you work. Nobody's called it this. There is already in your workspace or the place where you live, there is a cluster of people who already meet, whether you call the meeting or not. And whether the conversation is structured or not, there always is a conversation. And you know, and I do, that when they get into that space, you can pretty well predict what the conversation's gonna be. You can predict who's gonna say what and what arguments are gonna come out. You know this. So just because the leader, the leader hasn't called the meeting doesn't mean that these people are not already gathering. Come on now, smile. In fact, the leader almost never calls the meeting. Let the leader set the agenda. You determine the climate. 
You can set the climate. And in warm climates, some things will grow and other things cannot. So rather than go for the seats of office of power, you simply gather with two or three people in the place where you work and you start to pray around this question, what do we want God to do here? That makes sense? Oh, and by the way, if you would never form a rule, consider there already is a rule in the place where you work. I guarantee it. A rule is nothing more than a, a set of practices. It's a pattern of behaviors. And if I came to your workspace and I worked there for a month, no, a week, I bet I could come away with a handful of rules that nobody's written down and yet everybody follows. Do, do you get this? So there already is a rule. What if you played offense? What if you said, well, let's not just let society hand us those rules. Why don't we get in front of those rules? And why don't we use Paul's epistles uh, to guide the behavior in that space? And when, when you think of it, that's what the epistles are. Romans chapter 12, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be faithful in prayer. Joyful in persecution. Do not overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. Practice hospitality with all people. Do you hear what he's doing? He's giving you a rule in the middle of that epistle. And if you confused it with a set of instructions, miss the point. Paul is saying in Rome, there will be a small society who lives like this. Romans 12, 9 through 25. Or Ephesians, the same thing. Where Paul says, speak truthfully one to another. And do not become angry. Don't let the sun go down while you're mad. If you're stealing, get a job. Well, that's a rough translation. So that you'll have something to give to people and put away all anger, rage, malice, and wrath. And instead... Forgive one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Do you see what he's doing to the church in Ephesus? He is simply saying, you are a different society. These are your rules. Now live accordingly. 